You are listening to a podcast from the National. What you're listening to is the sound of a 15-year-old Emirati girl's science experiment being blasted into space. Wow. I am Nasr al-Wesmi. This is Beyond the Headlines. We'll get back to the story of Ariel Mansouri's genes in space experiment being sent to the International Space Station this week. But first... These radical leftists are the ones that brought violence. They are the ones preparing for violence. They said in their chants, kill the Nazis, kill the fascists. They came prepared for war. They're the ones that tried to kill us. A group of new Nazis gathered in the States, in the Virginian city of Charlottesville, to participate in a demonstration. It had all the markings of a white supremacist march, with Nazi chants, anti-Semitic slogans, clashes with counter-protesters. But then the media began noticing some protesters wearing t-shirts of Bashar al-Assad, the Alawite dictator who has seen his country devolve into one of the worst civil wars in Middle East history. Somehow, 9,000 kilometers away from the seat of power in Damascus, the Syrian president is celebrated by those neo-Nazi groups in America. I'm joined by Joyce Karam, our Washington correspondent who wrote a story about this weird connection. Joyce, thanks for joining us. Hi, Nasser. Of all people to be supporting Assad, white supremacist, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little confused, honestly. It's not obvious right off the bat. So could you please explain to us how neo-Nazis in Virginia began lionizing Bashar al-Assad of Syria? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's very odd. It's surprising, a uh, little bit worrisome to see that uh, three hours from Washington, D.C., you have uh, people wearing T-shirts celebrating uh, barrel bombing, uh, talking about how great chemical weapons are and to be used in uh, annihilating uh, uh, ISIS. Uh, this is an, an image that uh, I don't think many foresaw in, uh, in the United States. Uh, and the, the, the affinity between uh, the far right, the, the, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, it's not, with Assad, is not uh, entirely new. It's just now more visible. Uh, so the relation between the two goes decades uh, long. You have the the former uh, head of the Ku Klux uh, Klan, the KKK, uh, who's a white supremacist himself, David Duke, uh, has spoken um, very uh, in a very flattering way about Assad in, in the past. He uh, he had himself uh, visited. Uh, Syria in 2009, for people like David Duke uh, and his movement, they see in Assad somebody who uh, they think uh, hate, uh, hates the, the Jews or somebody who is uh, uh, very anti-Zionism uh, and very anti-Israel. So that anti-Semitic perception uh, helps in driving their support to Assad. There is also the Iraq war. 
uh, element. David Duke said that uh, the Iraq war uh, was was done uh, because of Israel to help Israel. That the, what he said, the Zionists uh, did the Iraq war, uh, and for that reason, they see in Assad the, in the Assad regime rejection of of the Iraq war a common uh, cause, almost. Uh, uh, the enemy of uh, my enemy is my my friend here. Uh, so that, in a nutshell, drives the support. I think uh, in 2017, uh, what's new is this image of authoritarian leaders is becoming now popular among uh, the far right, uh, the white supremacist uh, circles. Uh, they're uh, the, the people they they seem to have most affinity with are. Are strongmen, are dictators. Uh, so uh, they've been a very easy target for Russian propaganda, for example. They do uh, like uh, Vladimir Putin. And, uh, you know, uh, Assad's biggest supporter today is Putin himself. So that's where uh, all these elements overlap. And uh, they came together in the Charlottesville uh, violent uh, Clashes, uh, bringing a whole new dynamic to to U.S. politics and how uh, uh, these people uh, view Assad, even though they don't know much about the Syrian conflict itself. So Trump chimed in this week. He eventually condemned white supremacists and the alt right. But Trump is a hero for these people. They absolutely love him. They think he's their white supremacist champion. So. How will this reflect on their relationship with the American president? I think the, the white supremacist uh, relation uh, with with uh, the U.S. President Trump is a very opportunist one. Uh, they saw in his uh, uh, campaign uh, rhetoric and in his silence for 48 hours after uh, the Charlottesville terrorism uh, a, a message that would help them rally, re-energize uh, their base. Uh, but I think the moment he started uh, targeting them, the moment he spoke against them, uh, you you saw David Duke not happy about that. You saw uh, that they're uh, trying to reassure their, their supporters. I mean, you have to remember a few days after Trump won uh, in November, those people came to Washington, D.C., not far from here, and uh, orchestrated a uh, neo-Nazi conference. So uh, many Trump critics find in his silence, even his, his daughter Ivanka sees in his silence uh, uh, something that emboldens those, uh, those movements. Uh, that's why Charlottesville might be a turning point. We're hearing from many people in the Republican Party that this is threatening the fabric of the uh, United States, that this, this silence from the presidency should not uh, be acceptable, that moral clarity uh, has to be put in place to, to, to just address the American people and make sure that the dark history of the United States is not uh, repeated. Uh, uh, Trump himself is a businessman. He hedges on everything. He's, uh, the New York Times reported that his uh, advisor... 
Stephen Bannon told him, maybe don't criticize the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis uh, too severely because they resemble part of your uh, voting base and you might need uh, these votes. Uh, this is absolutely unprecedented. You haven't seen any former U.S. president operate on such uh, low bar when it comes to uh, dealing with these groups. Uh, but I think uh, Trump's statement uh, uh, on Monday and uh, what we're what we're seeing now, I think the president himself realizes that the neo-Nazi, the white supremacist uh, brand, is too toxic that even. Uh, not mentioning them would the linkage by not mentioning them would backfire on on his presidency. I mean, his poll numbers are 34 and 33 percent. That's a very low number, given where the state of the economy uh, is, and given that given that the U.S. is not uh, engaged in a new military conflict. This, these are very low poll numbers for uh, the president himself. Thank you, Joyce, for joining us. Thank you. We'll go further beyond the headlines in just a moment. But first, allow me to tell you about The National's other podcast. Business Extra goes deeper into the movers and shakers that make the Middle East such an important financial hub in the world. And Extra Time, from our esteemed sports desk, is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on iTunes. Or find us, as always, at thenational.ae. Staying in the U.S., but now we'll move to Florida. It's become an iconic event that captures the imagination of millions around the world. So iconic that a countdown from 10 almost spells out space launch. But this time, it was carrying a 15-year-old Emirati science experiment. To get on the Falcon 9, which is carrying provisions to the ISS, Alil Mansouri's experiment was chosen among several submissions as part of the Genes in Space competition. Her experiment looks to discover how exposure to space affects the health of live organisms at the cellular level. This is what she had to say about the experience. I can't, I literally can't believe that my experiment is already in space. And I can't see that it's going to space, it's already there and it's crazy. Um, all of these months um, and effort that has, put, that has been put into it and just seeing it launch there is just... The most amazing feeling yeah. that you can ever get. It's just the feeling that I got when it launched and, and when you can feel the sound waves. It's just a crazy feeling and, and it's just, it's inspiring in itself. And I guess you want to be on top of that rocket, right? Hopefully one day. That was Ali Al-Mansouri. And in that clip, you heard the voice of James Langton, one of our senior reporters who was at the Kennedy Space Center during launch. I spoke to James about how this might be the first step in the uh, very ambitious UAE space program. So James, you're at the historic launch pad uh, where Apollo 11 took off to the moon. You spoke to Ali Al-Mansouri. I mean, tell me, what was she like? Is she excited? Was she nervous? What was, uh, how did she feel today? She is, she is beyond excited. She is, uh, she has lit it off several, several days ago. Um, because uh, this is seeing it for real, and I'm, you know, uh, looking out now over the Florida coastline, and you can see all the launch towers. There's not just one. There's, there's five or six, including the Apollo 11 one, but the ones used by SpaceX. Um, and it's a, it's such an exhilarating atmosphere. Um, 
And uh, she she said to me yesterday, I I want to be an astronaut. This is what I want to do. Nothing's going to stop me. And uh, I have to say, she looks unstoppable. And, and you know, whenever you think about space travel or or a space launch, it, it's got this feeling of being at the very cutting edge of technology. Uh, is that the feeling you're getting right now, especially with the launch having happened already? Yeah, well, the thing is that, that it looks, it's always looked the same. You know, when you look at the launches back in the uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, uh, it looks, uh, the principle seems to be the same, which is a big flash of flame and then a, a wall of noise that crashes over you and this, this massive object lifts up into into the sky, trailing flames and smoke. But the technology has uh, has improved enormously in that 50 years or so. So what's inside these rockets and what guides them and what uh, the astronaut equipment the astronauts use has changed beyond recognition. If you think of the kind of things we were using uh, even 20 years ago, um, you know the the, uh, the the technology improved enormously. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a, uh, something that's, that's often referred to, but the, but the processing power of uh, of the those Apollo uh, moon missions on the spacecraft was about the same as you would now get in a pocket calculator. Uh, so it's it's the, the it, it, it's the principle is the same. You you light a fire and you send something up into the sky uh, using brute force. But the the technology is greatly improved, and it, it makes it it doesn't remove all the risks, but it makes it a lot sa- a lot safer, especially for man's life. No, I mean talking about technology vastly improving and developing. I mean her experiment as itself. Uh, being sent up to the ISS, the International Space Station. When when can we expect some results to come back? Uh, when can it start? You know, uh, uh, when can she get some some idea of how the experiment is going, how the research is going? Right. So obviously, what goes up has to come down. Uh, it goes up. Uh, the experiment goes up in a in a capsule uh, called a Dragon, uh, which is made by SpaceX, uh, and they they unload it. And uh, probably one of two American uh, astronauts. Uh, will begin the experiment. They'll unload it on Wednesday morning, uh, and then at some point they'll do the experiments. Uh, the, the idea of the experiments is, is twofold, really. The first is to actually look at the changes in in uh, in, uh, in genome uh, biological material that takes place in space compared with what happens on on Earth. Uh, but it's also to see if we can do these kind of experiments in space, uh, because it's never been done before. They've never tested human DNA in space. Uh, so if it's worked, they can uh, they can do that on the astronauts who are there. And the reason that's important is it allows us to try and figure out what happens to to, to people, to humans, when they go into deep space. Because the the ISS is is in space, but it's at a low altitude, it's a low orbit, and it's still protected from, for example, radiation by the Earth's radiation belt. But when we venture out, when we go back to the Moon, when we go to Mars, uh, it's a completely different environment. So this kind of testing allows us to speculate. Uh, what uh, what will happen to humans in deep space, and maybe do something to make it uh, safer and possible. You know, we can figure out maybe some kind of pill they can take, or some kind of cream, or even even at the kind of cutting edge, maybe uh, manipulate genes so that people are not so badly affected by radiation. So that's why this experiment is so important. Uh, so the tests will be done in space, and then they'll be packaged up, and that same Dragon capsule will, will detach from the International Space Station. Uh, it'll come back to Earth, uh, and then they'll unpack it. And the the materials will go off to Harvard, uh, which is where the experiment is based, and uh, Alia will join them for that. And then they'll actually look at what they've got and what they've found. So that's probably, we're looking uh, some months ahead from now. And just talking about Alia herself, I mean, this is a young Muslim scientist at the cutting edge of technology. She must be breaking a lot of stereotypes. Uh, I mean, not to get too, not to take it away from the science, but... 
What kind of impact do you think that'll have uh, in American media or around the world? Oh, she, she, well, certainly in the U.S., she's a bit of a media celebrity here, and she seems to be uh, a natural as well. You know, the the, the local, uh, the, the Florida-based uh, newspapers who cover these launches uh, have, have, you know, everyone's wanted to interview her. Uh, uh, NASA TV, she's uh, she headed up the uh, the live broadcast that you probably, saw, I hope you saw. Um, yeah. And... Uh, and then she's heading up to. Uh, apparently, she tells me she's heading up to New York, where she's going to do an interview for Teen Vogue. So, you know, she is she is a celebrity, uh, or fast becoming one, uh, but seems to be handling it quite well. But nothing seems to bother her. Back to Earth. It's been seventy years since the foundation of Pakistan as a country. The media often misrepresents this beautiful country with its bustling dynamics and modern tendencies. It's often just represented as an Islamic country with a hard-armed dictator. It's anything but. So we spoke to Taymur Khan, one of our reporters, about the origins of the country's foundation and the challenges it faces. You describe this ideal that Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, this kind of larger-than-life persona, had of uh, Pakistan, an ideal of a utopian, secular, and almost free society. But about a year after he led the movement for Pakistan's independence, he tragically dies. And you, you describe how the country descends into a violent mess. I mean, give us a bit of an idea of what happened then. Well, I hope I didn't describe it descending into a violent mess after that. I mean, of course, uh, partition, um, you know, in both what became Pakistan and India did descend into, into you know, widespread kind of... Um, horrendous violence. Um, in, in Pakistan, I mean, you know, Jinnah himself was a kind of a liberal, secular thinking, um, you know, elite, uh, but obviously framed the necessity of Pakistan in, in kind of, uh, you know, religious terms, or if not religious terms, then, then you know, Muslims having a kind of a, a unique identity within the context of the subcontinent. Um, and I think that, you know, articulating Pakistan in that way um, is something that has kind of never been resolved for the country. I mean, you say, you know, it's a country um, necessary to kind of safeguard the interests of Muslims, you know, mm. then it becomes, you know, how do you define Muslim and what is what is Islam? And those are basically unanswerable questions. Right. And I think, uh, you know, that's always been an issue that has kind of divided the country. And I think especially over the past couple of decades, um, as Islam becomes a greater kind of proportion of people's identities, um, those questions are again coming to the fore. I mean, I think in the early years, uh, you know, there's always been kind of religious, political religious forces, um, you know, pushing their interests um, in, in, in the realm of politics, even though they've never done well uh, at the ballot box in Pakistan. But I think in, in society, you know, they've made inroads and, and those forces were always there um, uh, kind of negotiating, you know, with, with other political centers in the country. And, and But I don't think Islam as an identity was kind of as strong as it is now. And I think that began, you know, kind of in the late 70s and then was catalyzed by the history of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the way that the Pakistani state kind of reacted to that and, and the way that it fit into the kind of larger geopolitics. Um, you know, we know the story about, you know, Pakistan becoming a place where uh, kind of anti-Soviet jihadist fighters, uh, you know, were, were, were sent in and were promoted and all of that. Um, so I think, you know, Jinnah's ideal for what 
Pakistan could be certainly wasn't met. Um, but I don't think, uh, you know, it kind of, as you described it, kind of descending into violence right away was also was not uh, not the case. Right, um, right, right. So, but, so, but yeah. in your story, I mean, just as all of this is happening, uh, you introduce your grandfather uh, and some of his, like, his, his heroic tales of trying to defuse some of the atrocities uh, that were taking place. Give us a bit more about him, this, uh, I mean, this idea of Pakistan, something that he, he really believed in. How do you think his generation would react if they saw what Pakistan is like today? Well, I think going back to his story, I mean, he was, you know, from a landowning family, um, you know, his father was in the military, other uh, relatives were in the military, but they were not from a, the kind of urban Muslim elite milieu that uh, Jinnah and his contemporaries in the, in the Pakistan Muslim League, excuse me, all India Muslim League uh, were from. So he was kind of at a remove from that politics. Um, and, and so while I think he supported, you know, those efforts, uh, you know, I think he was in a part of the country, you know, in the kind of princely states of the what, what is now Northwest India. Um, it was majority Hindu, but also, uh, you know, didn't feel like the kind of uh, agitation and violence that happened in the in the kind of run up uh, to partition um, in places like Bengal and Punjab. That seemed a bit far away, so it wasn't, you know, totally immediate. And I think because of that, you know. My grandfather and, and others in his situation were more on the fence about, you know, what was what they would do, or they, you know, there was a lot of confusion as well. I mean, it seemed, you know, the way he describes it, kind of confusion reigned supreme at the time. Um, so only when the violence it became clear that that was, you know, what was happening and it was potentially getting closer, did people kind of make decisions, um, you know, from where he was to, to leave for Pakistan. Um, but uh, I think, you know, people of his generation, uh, you know, looking back today, I mean, it's definitely bittersweet. Um, I mean, personally, you know, they, they went through a great trauma and they left left their homes and their, you know, their ancestors' homes um, and, and, you know, their history and culture, or their history, at least in some ways. Um, but, you know, they've also, and, and, and of course, Pakistan has probably fallen well short of their own aspirations and hopes in the beginning. Um Especially people who follow Jinnah, uh, but at the same time, you know, it's 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 where they they made a life. It's where they raised their families. It's where you know my grandfather and, and people from kind of his background and class did well, um, and you know, so they it's, it's it's also their country and a place they love. Um, but of, of course, uh, yeah, it's bittersweet. I would say. Right. So going back to something you said earlier. Uh there are some modern-day implications that stem all the way back to the de- those days, the days of foundation and whatnot. But, but what does Pakistan suffer from today that might be a result of those times? Well, I think, I, you know, what I mentioned earlier about, you know, this when you base a state that's very diverse uh, ethnically, politically, and in terms of also religion, um, despite being overwhelmingly Muslim, you know, when you base a state on on a kind of religious identity, you know, there's there's so much contestation about what uh, the meaning of Islam and what is Muslim, and I think that question has always haunted Pakistan, um, and you know, something that is unresolved. Um, also, you know, ident- that kind of identity was used to try and paper over the deep divisions in the country in terms of provincial differences and ethnicity, and and you know, 
it was never quite enough. I mean, in 71, you know, half the country broke off, um, and, you know, fought for its, its own independence in Bangladesh, uh, which is, you know, however many hundreds of miles uh, on the other side of India. Um, and, and Pakistan is, you know, politics is, in a way, has always been animated by the provincial differences. I mean, Punjab is, dominates the country. That's, you know, it's the biggest uh, kind of richest province, and other provinces have always felt maybe shortchanged by the center. But, um, you know, in recent years, there's been con- constitutional changes that have given more power to the provinces to try to address that, um, which is, you know, a, a, a big step. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, the violence of partition and that trauma, I'm not sure how much it affects kind of, the, you know, the country today or its, or its trajectory. I mean, you know, the, the challenge of, of kind of religious forces, I mean, I don't want to kind of pathologize Pakistan. I mean, if you compare it to India, which, you know, was founded as a secular republic, um, and which whose constitution is, is kind of very, uh, you know, equality for, for all Indians is enshrined in it. Um, you know, it's now kind of religious forces that were always there have the party um, that is part of a you know Hindu nationalist movement now controls the government and is very popular. Um, and so, also, I don't know if, if partition itself as an event is, is the kind of key variable there. Looking forward, uh, in your story, you talk about how Pakistan's most consequential years are still ahead. Uh, how so? What are some of the biggest challenges Pakistan might face? I mean, there are so many. Um, but I think at a very basic level, you know, Pakistan is, is gr- growing. I mean, it's still, you know, maybe one-fifth or one-sixth the size in terms of population of India. But it's, it's growing fast. I think the results of the latest census which was carried out after a very long time, will put the overall population over 200 million for the first time. Um, you know, two-thirds of those people are, are, are young. Um, so I think that, you know, the so-called youth bulge is, is, is a massive challenge. I mean, um, you know, the growing middle class, more young people than ever kind of engaged in politics, uh, are, you know, increasingly urban. Um, you know, the media environment there is, is, is like, vibrant and, and all-encompassing. I mean, it's, you know, everyone is, is glued to the news and politics and smartphones, et cetera. Um, but, you know, how do you meet the aspirations of, of, of young Pakistanis? And I think that's, you know, in terms of both education system and, and the economy, I mean, those are massive questions that I think will, you know, the answers to which will determine kind of the fate of the country in some ways. Right. Um, so, you know, amongst all of the big challenges, I think, you know, how do you uh, take advantage of, of this big, young, um, engaged population? Okay, thank you for joining us, Taimur. Thank you, Dr. Special thanks to James Langton for bringing us audio from the Kennedy Space Center. I'd also like to thank Joyce Karam, Ali Al-Mansouri, and Taimur Khan. You can listen to all our podcasts on iTunes, our website, or on Android through your favorite app. This has been another episode of Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr al Thank you, and goodbye.